1: The Crisis Next Door, a weekly report on the biggest conflicts around the world with host Jason Brooks. Thanks for listening to The Crisis Next Door. I'm Jason Brooks. There was much rejoicing around the world with the death of Islamic State leader Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, the latest blow for the jihadist group, including its defeat in a section of the Euphrates River along the border of Syria and Iraq, its last major area of control. But does Baghdadi's death bring ISIS closer to its end? There's already a new leader in place, and Islamic State affiliates are growing, particularly across West Africa and South Asia. Joining the crisis next door to talk about all of this is Seth Jones, Harold Brown Chair, Director of the Transnational Threats Project, and Senior Advisor with the International Security Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Seth also authored a Covert Action, Reagan, the CIA, and Cold War Struggle in Poland, which is available on Amazon. Seth, good to have you back on The Crisis Next Door.
0: It's great to be on. Thanks for having
1: me. Seth, Baghdadi is dead. Just how big of a blow is that for the Islamic State?
0: Well, I I think it's a blow. There's no question. And it's uh, it's worth noting that the Islamic State has certainly hit a rough patch. It has uh, lost virtually all of the territory it controlled in Iraq and Syria. It's now lost its leader um, so uh, so it's it's and and the area controlled was nearly the size of Belgium but at the same time it's worth noting that, Uh, Jihadist groups, whether it's been the Islamic State or its uh, predecessor, al-Qaeda, in Iraq, or Mm. al-Qaeda more broadly, have repeatedly lost their leaders and reemerged. In fact, in the Baghdadi case, his predecessor, Abu Musab al-Zarqawi, was killed about a decade ago. U.S. leaders said it's the end of the organization and yet it reemerged with violent strength in the Iraqi-Syrian border areas in 2014. So by no means is this over.
1: We've seen world leaders go back for the past two decades talking about the deaths of various ISIS leaders or Al-Qaeda leaders, yet the the organizations keep going. Have they not learned a lesson yet on this?
0: I think the intelligence agencies, law enforcement agencies in the U.S. and other countries are well aware that killing leaders does not end the organizations. I think the challenge is with politicians, and we've seen it with Republican and Democratic presidents and and politicians within their parties, they want to gloat after they uh, kill or capture these leaders. So I, I don't think politicians learn they want to convey what's really a gray area. It's not a black or white one. So I think that's really the challenge. But the counterterrorism officials involved, and I could put myself in that category, having been in U.S. special operations, I mean, these people generally know that it's not quite this easy.
1: The Islamic State didn't take long to name Baghdadi's replacement Abu Ibrahim al-Hashimi al-Qurashi. What's known about him?
0: Well, not a lot. And, And what's probably particularly noteworthy is is the last part of his name the al Karashi, which then has lineage with the prophet muhammad so what they're trying to do is tie their leader back to uh uh to the prophet it, it, it is it is uh it is a kuna a kakunya. it's a it's a name that they've given this individual it's not clear who that is and what name people have generally known him by. So uh, most of the Islamic leadership is well known. It's just not yet clear who that person with that name is right now. I think that's what people are outside anyway of the government are are looking at.
1: Is that a big advantage for the Islamic State at the moment? The fact that he's a bit of a mystery to organizations elsewhere in the world?
0: I'm not sure it's a huge advantage. Uh, I think it's probably helpful for the Islamic State to appoint a successor quickly because along with their loss of territory, it's a pretty serious psychological blow to the support network. So naming someone – and, you know, creating a bit of mystery is certainly helpful to some degree with, uh, with the, the, um, the, the rest of the networks. And again, we're not just talking about Iraq and Syria. We're talking about parts of West, North, East Africa, South Asia, Southeast Asia, so particularly large area.
1: We've seen tremendous resources poured into trying to defeat the Islamic State and al-Qaeda, yet they continue to thrive. How do they manage?
0: Well, one of the things that I've done is looked at the roughly 200 insurgencies that have taken place uh, since 1945. The Islamic State is, uh, is an insurgent group in its willingness and desire to hold and govern territory. And there are a couple of things that are common across these types of groups. One is they prey on local grievances. So what they really need is people in areas where they want to operate to be upset at everything from it could be economic issues, it could be sectarian. And the issue with grievances, for example, is that they exist in spades in Iraq and Syria. I mean, if you take Syria as an example, it is a shattered state right now. Uh, It's got massive economic problems. Eighty-three percent of the population lives under the poverty line Iraq is not much better. It's got a proliferation of Shia militias and uh, that, that have caused serious concern among um, some of the Sunni Arabs. Look at the demonstrations, the protests in Iraq over the past couple of weeks. They are protesting in part the Shia militias, the Hashad al-Shabi that populate uh, some cities of, of Iraq. There are also governance challenges. Um, the Assad regime doesn't control chunks of North of the north uh, and eastern parts of the country, if you look at World Bank data, Syria ranks in the bottom category of virtually every uh, statistic of government effectiveness, and, 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 and Iraq is in the same category. So, uh, so, so governance challenges abound. These things are primed for groups like the Islamic State to take advantage of.
1: Does a group like the Islamic State offer stability in these areas? And how did ISIS fare as an administrator of government services during its short-lived caliphate?
0: It looks like the Islamic State fared reasonably well for the first couple of months that it operated in a number of cities. And we know from talking to people in Mosul, for example, that when the Islamic State first took over, uh, they were not real barbaric in their treatment of local individuals. Uh, they kept a lot of the government officials in place. They, they weren't real uh, uh, serious about enforcing the length of beards or, or prohibiting things like cigarettes. Uh, over time, though, they, be- they became much more uh, sort of over-demanding of people, uh, they kept a, uh, essentially a ministry of virtue and vice that that uh, demanded that people grow their beards out, that they they not smoke. Um, so a range of these issues over time. So so by say year one, year one and a half, year two, in cities like Fallujah and Ramadi and Mosul, people people then increasingly became disillusioned with the Islamic State. So. I think over time it lost a lot of its support networks. And just to be clear, what what may occur in the future in countries like Iraq and Syria may not be the Islamic state as we know it. you have got al-Qaeda elements in these areas. We could see something, some group that emerges out of these jihadist networks. That's that's sort of a a 2.0.
1: And obviously, a lot of the focus is on the Islamic State and al-Qaeda, but as you just said, there are other jihadist groups active, especially in Syria. Do any of those groups show the ability to supersede their more well-known counterparts?
0: Well, what we see in Syria, for example, in Idlib, is, uh, is a group uh, called Hayat Tahrir al-Sham. They have a pretty significant following they've got uh, over 10,000 fighters and uh, and they have they've had historical links to al-qaeda including to Ayman al-Zawahiri the current head of al-qaeda they provide services and governance in areas that they control in idlib so there are groups like that that may be able to take advantage of the decline in territorial control the death of baghdadi but I think what's, what, what's, what's worth noting is that the numbers of individuals that support some form of Salafi jihadist ideology in Iraq and Syria are almost 40,000. Those networks are pretty fluid right now. So what we certainly could see is the rise of a charismatic leader, someone like Muhammad al jalani who's the head of Hayat Tahrir al-Sham, and to establish some new group. Uh, under even a different name that tries to bring some consensus to these uh, disparate networks.
1: You're listening to The Crisis Next Door. I'm Jason Brooks, and we're talking about the evolution of the Islamic State with Seth Jones. Harold Brown Chair, Director of the Transnational Threats Project and Senior Advisor with the International Security Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Seth, you've written that the jihadist movement has ebbed and flowed during a series of four waves going back to 1988. Can you describe those waves?
0: Sure. Uh, Waves in this sense are really periods of Uh, surges in violence, followed by what you might call reverse waves, where the levels of violence decrease. So the first wave really starts, it emanates out of the uh, Afghanistan war against the Soviets. And it starts at the end of the 1980s when Osama bin Laden, Ayman al-Zawahiri, and a range of other figures establish al-Qaeda, uh, over the next decade or so, we see al-Qaeda target U.S. embassies in Africa, and including in Tanzania and in Kenya. And then, um, then we have 9-11. That's really the peak, uh, the, the, the high point of that first wave. It's then followed by a range of efforts by the U.S. to target. That means either capture or kill al-Qaeda leaders in Afghanistan, in the U.S., in Pakistan and in other areas. We get a second wave that starts around the time of the U.S. invasion of Iraq, and it's followed by a major increase in attacks in London and Madrid, Spain, in Casablanca. But then it gets—we see a reversal as Al Qaeda in Iraq is weakened in, in Iraq. There are U.S. drone strikes against Al Qaeda operatives in Pakistan. There's a third wave that that then appears really around the 2000 seven eight and nine period uh in particularly areas like yemen where the very influential yemeni-american named anwar al-laki uh sets up shop he leaves the u.s settles in yemen and there are a number of uh uh, attacks or attempted attacks against the u.s including the underwear bomber uh, that come from areas like this that's followed by a reversal and then, around the time of the Arab Spring, we see again a fourth wave, which is really taken of advantage of by groups like the Islamic state, as well as the uh the withdrawal of u s forces in two thousand and eleven from iraq so it's uh, Islamic state is at the head of that fourth wave uh which which really we're now at the end the tail end of that fourth wave, and I think the question that I'd ask is what kinds of factors would contribute to a, a fifth wave.
1: Interesting that you mentioned the Arab Spring in this be- and the demonstrations taking place in Iraq right now. We're seeing demonstrations take place on massive scales across the world in, in different locales, such as Chile, Bolivia, Spain, Algeria, the, the list just goes on. That Would those countries particularly be susceptible to a fifth wave? And what could be done to prevent a fifth wave?
0: I think there are a number of countries that could be susceptible to a fifth wave. I think what, what happened during the Arab Spring, starting in 2011, is that countries that some countries that saw a fifth wave or, or that, that, that uh, saw a fourth wave um, faced uh, rising wars, so the possibility of groups to take advantage of wars, and they saw collapsing governments. Libya, the government was overthrown under Muammar Gaddafi and became a sanctuary for jihadist groups. The war in Yemen, uh, we saw the overthrow of its leader and it then turned into a a major war involving Al Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, the Houthis and others, the Iranians got more involved. Syria, uh, Assad came under major pressure from rebel groups that started in 2011. I think the issue as we look at the Middle East, for example, is is do these protest movements continue to grow in size? And do we see them significantly weaken uh, governments in areas where they're occurring? And and also, do we see them move from protest to outright wars? So do we see Lebanon go from protest movements to outright civil war and insurgencies? Do we see the same thing occurring in Iran, Iraq, Jordan? And I think the more we see governments start to weaken because of that, the more we see these protests move from largely nonviolent efforts to significant wars, people take up arms, the more likely I think that we'll see groups like al-Qaeda, the Islamic State, and other jihadist networks attempt to take advantage of those vacuums
1: we've seen pretty significant growth of the Islamic state in Western Africa as well as South Asia. How big of a threat is ISIS to those countries in those regions?
0: I think there's no question at this point that both ISIS and the end al Qaeda present threats in areas like West Africa. Um, We've seen attacks from the Islamic State Greater Sahara in the Mali-Niger area. We see groups affiliated with the um, Islamic State, particularly the Islamic State West Africa in a separate category uh, under Boko Haram continue to conduct attacks in northern Nigeria. Uh, There's also a growing movement um, that we call Jamaat Nasir al-Islam wal-Muslimin or JNIM operating in West Africa. It's an Al-Qaeda group uh, that has pledged allegiance to the head of Al-Qaeda, Ayman al-Zawahiri. It now has uh, a major foothold in areas of northern Mali, uh, parts of Niger. They've conducted attacks in other countries in the region. At this point, what I'd say is we see a, a widening of jihadist networks in areas like West Africa. I don't see a lot of evidence of conducting external operations against the U.S. homeland or Europe from these areas. So at the moment, they're primarily regional problems. I think what you'd have to look for is, do we see an increase in external operations or, or what we call in, um, in counterterrorism lingo, ex-ops from, from these areas? And I think they're, that means that they're important to keep a close eye on.
1: You just mentioned Europe, and French President Macron called Bosnia Europe's ticking time bomb due to the country's foreign fighters in Syria and Iraq, although data published by Radio Free Europe shows that Belgium, Sweden, and Denmark have a higher percentage of fighters per capita compared to Bosnia. How big of a crisis is this for Europe?
0: Well, I I mean, Europe has been the one that's probably been hit hardest by... Groups like the Islamic State and the proliferation of fighters in areas like Iraq, Syria, and Turkey. France has been hit multiple times. Uh, It's been hit with Islamic State-directed plots, including in Paris in 2015. It's been hit with uh, vehicle attacks like ones we've seen in Nice. Germany, the same kinds of things. The major Christmas market attack that was a vehicle attack. Uh, The French attack had direct links to individuals operating in the area outside of Brussels and Belgium. So Europe has been um, threatened by uh, jihadist networks operating on its soil. So I think, you know, there certainly is a concern of individuals now returning to or continuing to aspire to inspire individuals in in Europe. So. I mean, the the Balkans is a little different. The governance in the Balkans is is concerning. That maybe what Macron is re, is referring to. I think the Belgians have probably improved their police, broader law enforcement and intelligence collection of networks operating in the in in Belgium. Uh, Balkans are a little bit more of a wild card right now.
1: The Trump administration has somewhat reversed itself on a full pullout of U.S. forces from northern Syria and will continue to provide some amount of cover for Kurdish fighters who've done a lot of the heavy lifting and fighting ISIS. The Kurdish-run SDF ran the prisons holding Islamic State fighters. Any idea how many were incarcerated and, and how many may have escaped given Turkey's offensive against the Kurds in northern Syria?
0: Well, the numbers are in the five digits. I mean, we know, for example, that they're at least up until recently were in the order of 10,000 Islamic State fight- fighters in uh, in prisons run by Syrian Democratic Forces, including ones at al Hall, uh, for example. The challenge is it's not entirely clear yet how many have escaped or been freed from those prisons. And the broader challenge is that uh, there are a number of European countries or Central Asian countries that have revoked the citizenships of these uh, individuals. Or even if they haven't, they don't want them coming back. So there's a, there's a much broader question about what you do with 10,000 or more Islamic State fighters. And then if you add on potentially radicalized family members uh, that may not be fighters per se, but are are upset and in some ways, understandably upset that they've been kept in detention facilities, haven't been through judicial processes, and and has made some of them quite angry, uh, re- putting them at risk of radicalization. So we're talking about you know five digits worth of of people that that may be potential problems in the foreseeable future.
1: While it doesn't seem likely that jihadist groups will be entirely defeated any time in the near future. Is there any real threat of a caliphate being formed and holding? It seems that holding ground is anathema to traditional guerrilla tactics of staying on the move.
0: Well, the if 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 you look at the way someone like uh, Mao, Mao Tse Tung, who, who was one of the most influential individuals that has written on guerrilla warfare, I think most people that have encouraged guerrilla warfare, and this has been true of jihadist groups, is... They're really – this is a phase of warfare. Ambushes, raids, uh, bombings are conducted when there's a major disparity between the group and governments that it's facing. But at some point, if there's some more equilibrium in that balance of power, groups will move towards more conventional forces. This is why after the U.S. leaves Iraq in 2011, two or three years later, as the Islamic State builds up its weapons, its – uh, tactics, its techniques, its procedures, its training. It is able to take on Iraqi forces straight up in in roughly conventional battles in Fallujah and Ramadi and other cities. So really guerrilla tactics are, are a, um, a tactic that groups use temporarily while they're in a weaker status. So we certainly could see in areas that we see the Islamic State, Al-Qaeda or other groups begin to build up their capacity to shift to more conventional operations.
1: It's both fascinating and frightening to witness the evolution of these jihadist groups. Seth, good to have you back on The Crisis Next Door.
0: It's great to be on. Thanks for having me.
1: We've been joined by Seth Jones, Harold Brown Chair, Director of the Transnational Threats Project, and Senior Advisor with the International Security Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Thanks for listening to The Crisis Next Door. I'm Jason Brooks. Till next time. The Crisis Next Door with host Jason Brooks is produced weekly. If you have any thoughts for Jason,
0: email him at TCNDpodcast at kcbsradio.com. Again, that's TCNDpodcast at kcbsradio.com.